Hey, one quick thing before we get started. I just want to remind you that this podcast is for information, education, and entertainment. It is not a substitute for therapy or therapeutic intervention. If you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or contact a crisis hotline. everyone it's LaShonda from labors of love and you are listening to the labors of love podcast y'all i am so excited uh to have this conversation with my guest today uh she is a partner communication strategist and a liberatory coach for reimagine collective she's also a dear dear friend and sister of mine part of my chjl coaching cohort we have aj titong hi aj Hi, Shonda. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, my goodness. Uh, thank you for accepting. Um, We're going to jump right in because I have a feeling we we got a lot to talk about. So I'll start with you. I can do all my guests and ask, what is your labor of love? My labor of love. I was, you know, I was practicing this, but then I was like, I shouldn't practice. It should just be something I say naturally. But when I was thinking about it, I was like, oh, I feel like I'm a translator and not a translator of like a different language, like a different um, community language, but um, a cultural translator of the sense and a translator of generations. Mm. And I see that because um, if you go to anybody in my inner circle, my family or friends, they'll be like, okay, AJ is the person you need to go to if she needs to connect mom and kid or AJ is the person to go to if you need to like fix a little conflict that is like based off of like cultural misunderstanding or um, a disagreement or or whatnot. So um, oftentimes that labor of love is like me just really listening intently to people from different generations and just making it make sense for people who are trying to connect on a different level. Um, and I think like overall, the labor of love is just like storytelling and listening. And that's, that's what I do. Okay. So I got super excited Okay, <laughs> when you said that, because, so I go through these iterations of what I call myself, um, and like what's visible on my website. Right. <laughs> and so I connect on all the levels. So right now my website has me listed as a storyteller, a story holder and a soul hugger but an iteration before that was translator what yes oh my god (laughs) now i do think there are some similarities in the like that anyone who translates language spoken and unspoken that we would have in common and how you described yourself as translator and myself but there are some nuanced differences for me i when i thought translator it was more translating people's body's language to something they could understand for themselves. So I was a translator because so many times people have asked me, am I clairvoyant? <laughs> am I a mind read? Like, am I these things? Interestingly, I'm starting to reconsider my answer of no to those, but that's a different subject. But 
What I did say at the time was, no, I just listen to what you're presenting. Um, and I, I'll give um, a, a really cool example from before we hit record, right? I asked AJ, so like, are you traveling? Have you been traveling? Are you going to travel? And she launched in to tell me about travel. And I could tell by the way she was answering the question, she was answering based on on the fact that she felt I had knowledge that she frequently travels, which I did not. But a little sliver of her video is showing me a suitcase. <laughs> and so my curiosity was simply because I saw a suitcase, right? Well, I do that with people's nonverbals, their body language, where their eyes go, different things. So when I'm with someone, people don't recognize that, quote unquote, thinking is one cognitive cognition is not our only um source of information and sense of and ways of knowing and when people are thinking they think they're only doing it in their heads but people do all kinds of things when oh, they're yeah. thinking because thinking is more than just a cognitive experience so when i'm with people and they are tapping into their different ways of knowing oftentimes they do things that are curious to me and they'll do something with their body. And I will ask a question based on my curiosity of what they're doing. And they're like, could you hear me thinking? And I'm like, no, but I saw you, right? <laughs> so when I said translator, I often meant helping people translate their bodies and behavior into language. As a trauma specialist, we're so quick, generally, to go, oh, that person is dot, dot, dot. And it's very rarely dysregulated afraid having a trauma response it's something else stupid ignorant doesn't mm -hmm. care about and so my part of my translation is helping people translate those convenient easy narratives into what data do we have based on what was happening so that is how I um describe myself as a translation when you said that I got excited and to hear about the intercultural and intergenerational nature of how you show up in relationships is fascinating. So can we spend a little time there? Yes, absolutely. When you were talking about how like you notice things or like behaviors, I like to think some of the practice around the translating is like when I listen, I, I hear ranges in tone mm. that tell you a different story. So like, Let's say, hypothetically, I'm talking to my aunt, and she's really, like, disappointed in, like, a cousin, right? This is just hypothetical, not real life. And I'm hearing her tell this story, but I'm hearing, like, the hurt. I'm hearing, like, the annoyance, or, like, I hear, like, the different tones and, like, the way she she tells a story. And then I go back and, like, okay, so this is actually what I heard. Uh, and I think this is what they meant, and, and that's kind of like the how the translation happens. And I, I bridge it back and I'm like, okay, so this is what person said. And they didn't mean to say it in that way, but they really meant to say it in this way. And they're really coming from a place of like, um, you know, independence and like learning about themselves. And so it's just, I have to fill in the gaps. I realize part of being a translator is you fill in the gaps where the, 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 the words aren't really there for one person and I just fill it in so that the other person can kind of get it a little bit better. Oh, yes. Right. So very true to translate. Like I, um, okay. I know a little bit of Spanish. Mm -hmm. 
what I also know is some things don't directly translate between English and Spanish, right? So when translating, you're getting the closest meaning to what has been said in either direction to try to communicate. And that's what I heard in what you said. And so much, this is why I love, love, love working with relationships because part of my process when I'm working with them is my translation will look something like person A says, they they explain a situation, they say something. And before I kind of, I, I ask person B, before you respond to what you just heard, tell us what you heard. Mm-hmm. And so often what they heard is not what right. I heard or what person A said. But helping person B understand the filters, which for me are life's past experiences, the filters through which you heard their words, they will add words, they add their sentiments, and they're like, and that's when person A said they couldn't stand me. And it's like, okay, pause one second. And because I didn't hear the words, I can't stand. Please tell me which words were used to communicate that. Mm -hmm. And that's when they're like, well, they said this. It's helpful for people in relationship to understand the language, the language of regret, the language of fear, the language of sadness, the language of anger. Because we think, oh, I speak English. Yeah, we speak way more than just English. We have these various languages based on these experiences. And when, so it's not as much enough for me to go, oh, you misunderstood. Let me tell you what he or she meant or they meant. But it's more like while we're getting this thing worked out, you also are learning how that person communicates the words that activate this the body language that activates this because sometimes they'll say they 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 heard something and it wasn't something they said it was the way they rolled their eyes or how they shifted their body weight so there is so like I'm so excited how they feel like you know like if you caught me on a day where I was like oh I feel tired I'm, and I could say the same exact words. It's not and compared to another day where I'm like super excited, exuberated and all of this. The two ways that I say it is going to mean completely different thing. So I love this so much. I realized that I've caught myself a translator, but I haven't really got to like get excited and talk to somebody about what I mean. Either people don't know what I mean, they just kept overlooking it or thought they knew, but no one's really even asked me, what do you mean by that? So maybe people are here thinking that I like translate languages. I don't know. (laughs) But (laughs) so how you talked about like friends and family, how this might play out in your like interpersonal space, but how does this translate in a more professional way that you show up with folks? Yeah, you know, this is a practice that I've had to develop. I think um, working in the social justice space and movement space, people have different languages. Um, A lot of people are very passionate about what they do. Um, And I like to think that people who are in this work are in this work because they're, they're healing their own trauma, right? They're, they're, they're healing, discovering like why they're doing movement work. And so having to like listen to people from different backgrounds and how how it's they've experienced injustice 
um, you kind of have to learn that language and it goes back to like community care. Like, are you really listening to people? Like what is the, the, the soul, soul problem that they're experiencing mm. and just like removing yourself from it. So I've had to develop that, that sense of like, okay, it's not about me. It's about the person in front of me or the communities that I'm working with. And so I, I talked about how like I do a lot of storytelling and the last um, place I traveled to was in Atlanta and I did like a whole storytelling intensive where we brought community health workers from across the country and the Pacific into a space where we just trained them on like, how do you tell your personal story first? Um, and it, it goes back to like Marshall Gantz's style of the, the public narrative, where it's like the story of self, us, and now. But how do you bring in the cultural aspect of that? Um, and a lot of us, especially people of color, we're natural storytellers. It's in our DNA. That's how we pass down our traditions. It's mm -hmm. through oral storytelling. So it's like, how do we bring that back? Decolonize this idea of talking about the self and really just... Um, starting off with like this is how i'm feeling this is where i'm coming from and then how does that tie into community health workers like why would you tell a community health workers to tell their story well because they're the ones that are in the communities telling people this is where you get covid vaccines this is where um you get preventative care this is how you get screened this is how you get scanned this is how you apply for health insurance so it was really like how do you get um people who do community work to tell their own stories so that the people in the communities are not scared to reach out and get these resources or get access. Um, so that's really like how I've like used storytelling as a part of connecting with community. Oh, so juicy. Like AJ, you got me over here squirming. I love it. <laughs> um, and I also love the nuance of words. So in a second, I'll talk about like, I call myself a storyteller, but I mean it in a different way. But based on what you said, I love that. Decolonizing the transmission of knowledge is huge for me right now because I am aware that there are so many things I have in me that have been passed down to me. There's ancestral knowing and wisdom that I have. And what I mean by the colonization of knowledge is when folks, namely non-melanated folks, get their hands on knowledge, but they have the social capital in order to say, here is a, it is a thing. It was a thing before they called it a thing, but their social capital allows them the recognition and the authority to call it a thing. And then they sell it back to those of us who already have it inside of us. Mm -hmm. And then we're validated when we get a piece of paper from somebody who says, now you know the thing. That didn't even originate with a lot of people who are selling the thing. Uh -huh. Right? So I've, 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 I've pushed pause on trying to learn from other folks, particularly non-melanated folks. And I've really been trying to tap into what can help me move up and through the things that I already know. And because there's been an emphasis put on cognitive knowing, people goes, well, if you didn't go to school for it, no, I don't necessarily mean knowing through a book. I mean, how do I know with my soul, right? Uh. And as we're talking about that, it, it also... I know that there are books in me. Like I've known this since I was much younger, but I have this huge resistance to writing. And I, I'm a really good writer. Like I can say that, you know, whatever I like it, no, but I'm not for everybody. But objectively speaking from, I, I have a really good grasp of the English language and I am a storyteller. So I can weave a story. I, AJ, I can't write. Mm. I can't write. And I realized maybe within the last week or so 
eh, it's probably been a few weeks now, actually. Um, I was talking to a friend. We were driving back from, <laughs> interestingly, a training, but one that I was willing to go to. Um, and I think it's because there is power in the oral tradition. And I, I, I'm, I'm allowing myself to sit with what is it like to get the stories out, but not put it in written form in a way that does that. And in one way, that's what my podcast is. It's why I love my podcast so much. It is an oral history of over a hundred people's labors of love. And, and so I love that so much. When I talk about myself as a story, oh, wait, let me pause. I'm just so excited. I'm gonna take a breath. Did you want to say anything? Um, you know, like, as you're talking about, like, well, I can't write it. And I was thinking uh, as a person who does a lot of communications work, like there's so many mediums of communication. There's like art, there's like painting, there's like singing, there's dancing, there's writing itself and then like speaking, right? Um, I was thinking, well, your gift is like your voice, right? Like your gift is like you telling stories or talking talking story with other people. And I, I was reflecting on like, you know, the written art I feel iffy about it too. And I have a hard time writing. And you know what I always think about? And this is why like, I get weird about writing personal stuff on social media. It's because I don't want the written word to be used against me. But if you hear my voice, you hear my storytelling, then you get it. But like when someone reads it, I don't know if they're getting that story the way that I would tell it. Mm -hmm. Because we've seen historically how our words have been taken out of context. Yes. And and used by non-melanated people yep. to tell our stories for us. And so I, I can, I hear that and I feel that. You're so right. And and sometimes they're just stolen. And then stolen. someone says, this is my story. And you're like, mm -hmm. okay, I recognize that like, there are a lot of overlap and similarity to people's stories, but I'm pretty sure that was like my story. <laughs> so mm -hmm. yeah, I, I'm glad that resonated. And the other forms of communicating so being able to spend more time painting love it you know um I do enjoy singing I enjoy movement dance and all of that is how historically stories were passed down and and not primitively you know colonization would have us out here believing that you know it was passed that way because they weren't intelligent enough to know right when it's like nah that ain't even it. There is a soul to a, there's a soul to a story that oftentimes can't be captured in a book. But like you were saying, AJ, when we are performing our story, when we are gifting our story, the soul of it travels to the recipients. And if they're going to retell that story, they, they can tell it with the soul attached to it. And I think that is so super important. When I talk about myself as a storyteller, what I realize is I don't do a lot of telling other people's stories. And I don't now in some formal ways, you can go back. I had a podcast with Joey Taylor. We do trauma-informed storytelling workshops. So there, there's an aspect of my work where we're trying to, like you, like you do in the community, help people craft and tell their stories but the main way I'm a storyteller is I re-gift people's stories back to them 
So when folks come to me in a therapeutic or a coaching nature, they come with their story. But man, our stories we have of ourselves are so full of inaccurate language. (laughs) It's full of inaccurate concepts. And what I mean by inaccurate is when someone comes to me and they're telling me the story of their childhood, uh, full of abandonment and trauma and little community care. And then they use words like, I I don't know, I was just a bad kid. (laughs) You know, I, I did this, this and this and, you know, but then I got to high school and I was lazy and, and I'm never going to tell someone their story is wrong. Yeah, But what I do is I take, and this is where my really good recall and memory comes in handy because I remember all those things and we might pause in a place and I might say, can I, can I tell you your story, what I heard? And as I go in, I'm replacing some of those words with words that I know to be true based on how the, the nervous system how trauma impacts a person, how culture impacts a person, naming the impact of oppressive systems like colonization and white supremacy and exploitative capitalism. And when I give back their story, as I give it to them with the soul, based on how I see their story, one of the first questions I ask is, did I add anything or did I delete anything? That's super important to me. And I want them to think about that. And when they say no, my question is, how did it feel in your body to hear me tell you your story versus when you told me your story? Because I'm not trying to create a new narrative out of things that they didn't say. But I am trying to accurately reflect back to them so that they can see their resilience. They can see their wholeness, even if they feel like their story is just a story of brokenness. And Mm -hmm. I and when I do to see people's bodies shift when they hear me give them back their story, I feel like there's no greater gift that I can give a person because any healing that takes place in the relationship between me and, and that person started when I re-gifted them their story and they could see themselves differently, oftentimes capable and worthy of healing. And that's how we proceed. That is like the first thing I do with folks. So when I call myself a storyteller and a story listener, that's what I mean. And that soul hugger is <laughs> just wrapping my arms around them physically and emotionally, literally, and spiritually as they learn to to see their story in a different light. That is so beautiful. I I've been a receiver of your soul hugs and it's, and I can say that it's definitely like meant so much to me. And just, you know, having someone repeat back or hear back your story is kind of like affirmation like yes, this happened. And these are the other things that happened as well. You were like surviving, you know, like you were protecting yourself. You were alone, but like you found strength. And it's like uh, when I go back to like you're filling in like some of the gaps, it's like those things that we don't hear in our own stories Mm -hmm. because we're so programmed to hear our stories a specific way. 
And the practice of storytelling is how do we reprogram our minds to tell our stories in a in our more true self as, as our true self versus like this is how I was told to tell my story versus like this is how I want to tell my story this is how I actually feel and this is actually how it happened um, and for someone to hear to repeat back what they're actually hearing like how beautiful and but it's such a gift it's truly a gift I, I agree. And that's why, like, I was thinking, like, I wanted to caveat. It is a gift. And I work on it. I say that because if you've never experienced it with me or someone else, I want to be clear that I, I, I am skillfully choosing which words. I am intuitively doing this. It's not about, again, trying. the goal of it is not to make someone feel better about themselves or their story. It's to accurately represent it. And mm. if people don't understand that, then they'll go and try to, you know, roll shit and sugar and call it dessert. That's not the goal. You know, it's, and I, I do use a lot of their language. So I'm just saying that to say, like, I hope don't, like, it's, it's beautiful. It's a gift. I hope don't nobody hear this, but like, oh, I'm gonna just start saying what I want to say back to people. No, 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 it, it, it's not that. But I, I really just appreciate how we are helping people understand the gift of story. And you were saying in some ways we were taught how to tell our story. I also think in addition to that, we tell the same stories so much that even if our original retelling of it wasn't accurate, we've said it so much that we believe that's how it happened. Oh, and sure. so, and I can tell when a story becomes automatic for a person because they launch into the way they do it. And so I will use um, interesting tactics like saying, can you start in the middle? Mm. When they have to start in the middle, it's like, well, because the story is so automated. I think about folks who have been recipients of a lot of community mental health. They go from provider to provider often telling their story in a very particular way because everyone has you do an intake and you're telling it over and over again. So you can just see the mold over. So this mm -hmm. would happen. And it's interesting because um, very often in, people will start with their trauma and they launch into it. And so I will ask questions that elicit them to go to a different place, you know, in addition, I start very often with where were you born? When were you born? Okay, that's pretty simple. But then I'll go, tell me about like, if it's something where I'm familiar with, if it's Detroit or Cincinnati, what, what neighborhood? What was it like then? When it's no place, hey, I've never been there. Tell me about this community. Is it urban? Is it rural? Is it something? All of a sudden, that train of monotony and telling their story gets interrupted because it's like, oh, I never actually talk about the environment. Mm -hmm. What the name so they're forced to look at so many things outside of just the narrow this was my life. Well, while you were lifing, life was lifing around you. Let's look around you and bring some of that into the story because that's what you were absorbing as a child okay this is you what was your parents relationship like at the time of your birth no one's going to remember that from memory so then you gotta well I think it was this this and this and then I love this question how you know where's your source who told you then uh, they're forced to go like I don't actually know well let's think about it 
were grandma and grandpa telling you? Was it pictures you saw? All of a sudden, people's stories expand before their own eyes because they're like, I have never considered when this was going on in my family. I knew how I was reacting. I never really considered how my older sister or my younger brother reacted to that but now they have to kind of go back and remember that none of us are traveling our stories independently but when we tell our stories we tell them independently so trying to help people realize that there was a whole community of folks around you who are part of your story it is just it is a beautiful beautiful thing and I haven't been this excited about my work in a long time AJ so thank you Like, yes, this is why I do what I do. <laughs> and like, if you think about our stories being books, right? Like there's so many chapters, there's so many volumes, there's so many versions and it just keeps going and it keeps going. Like our stories never end. Our stories, like there's a story about today, right? There's a story about yesterday. There's a story that's going to happen tomorrow. There's stories that we're already planning in our minds. We're manifesting in our minds. And so one of the things we were talking about before we got started was how you do this work and you get to travel yeah. to do this work. Other coach, like, can you talk about that a little bit? Because I also, yeah, for real, for real, if if someone who is in charge of contract, just listen to this wonderful podcast. If you need someone to like carry AJ's bags or like get her water, <laughs> you know, be a co-storyteller because you get to do some dope stuff in some dope places. So just kind of share with us what that travel is like. So um, a little bit of context. I um, worked in public health for many years, over 10 years. Um, I worked for a national organization. It was an Asian American Pacific Islander organization. And part of that work was how we do policy advocacy on a community health level. And it was like, how do we, how do we, get healthcare to folks in um, in different parts of the country and the Pacific. And so um, a lot of that experience like brought me to like, we would have to visit policymakers at their offices. And like, you know, sometimes when you visit, when you do these hill visits, they call them hill visits, you bring like brochures about like your organization. And so I was like, what if we just told our story, like have actual community members tell their stories um, and like, bring that to them so that these people who are making decisions about our lives can be like, oh shit, I'm sorry. I don't know if I'm supposed to say that. Oh shoot, <laughs> this is actually happening. Like. This is actually happening. These are real life people who are being impacted, who are getting cancer, who are like, who have all of these chronic diseases and no one's paying attention to them. And so it's like, um, how, like building out, like training communities to like share their actual experiences in that way. And so one of the projects that I worked on was through the CDC. It's called the Racial and Ethnic Approaches to Community Health. And um, when I ventured off as as a consultant, I was brought on by someone I used to work with to work with the University of Hawaii because they got this grant to work with Pacific Islanders um, in multiple states um, and islands. And um, the the grant was specific to like healthy eating, active living, stopping tobacco use and then like linking people to other health resources and they're like well we don't know how to do that because we don't know how chamorros communicate 
We don't know how Palauans like talk about healthy eating. We don't know how like the Marshallese, um, like what is their regular practice of like activity. And so can you, can we just send you there AJ so that you can observe and like do like some storytelling training, um, give them some communication skills building or capacity building and just like, how, how do they tell their stories? And so I literally like would go, I, I remember my first trip to the Pacific. Um, I went to Guam last year and they're like, just notice how the community like interacts or uses tobacco. Um, there's a huge like a uh, vaping problem, like on the islands, there's like a, there's a vape shop, like on every block, every corner. And it, and sometimes they like sell it to young kids and it's just part of the culture. And so it's like, how do you like, what are you, what am I learning from that? And so like communicating and like talking to young folks on the island be like, how is this accessible to you? Like, how did you get this? You know, it's just like hearing those stories are like, why do you do it? And it's like, oh, it's a pastime or, um, you know, like, I just want to be accepted with my friends. It's a cool thing that people are doing right now. And so it's just like observing those things. And then like having folks from the community, like actually like tell those stories of like, oh yeah, like my little cousin can easily go to the vape shop and get this. And little do people know, like, even it's so normalized that they don't even know it's illegal. So it's like, how do you build stories from like the cultural experiences, but also the the habits, or, or I don't want to say habits, but the, the practices of like everyday living, how do you build stories out of that? Mm. So it's just obser obser observing that. And then the, the actual cultural nuances, it's like, um, in a lot of communities, there's there's kind of like a hierarchy. So there's like a chief, there's like a community leader, there's like, whatnot. And so like, not everyone can tell their stories unless they ask permission from like their elders. Right. And so it's like, even understanding that context changes a story in a lot of ways. And it changes how, how we talk about health and how we talk about what is active, um, living an active life. Does that mean that we go out and we fish for our food or does that mean like we wait until like this elder gives us permission or like, they guide us to do these different things. So it's, it's, it's observing a lot of observing in these different community settings and bringing, building context around that. CDC is not going to know. Well, I don't know if I should say that, but like, you know, there's a lot of cultural things that we don't understand. Like if we're just thinking about regular health, like regular colonized health. Colonized health. Yeah. You have to understand like the cultural aspects of health. And before you can actually make a change, you can't tell someone to stop smoking if that's part of the culture, you know? I mean, literally, I had to write down for myself, like, how different what I hear you saying is from colonization. Like, how invaders came into so many places and said, hey, you're doing it wrong. Speak my language, change your name, worship my God wear my clothes and like I I feel a visceral rage when I think about that like this is what they did but then I hear a difference in saying can we just observe the beauty the nuance the reality of a culture and from there recognize that maybe there are some risks that the culture has not recognized about something. And then being humble 
and strategic in saying, how can we provide this information to them in a way that might help them understand the risks without demoralizing, deculturalizing and all of that and how different that feels in my body than what has happened so, so, so often. Um, And as I heard you talk, I can remember being, when I say a kid, at this point, I'm probably a teenager, an adolescent of some sort. And you really start to get the questions. What do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, For the record, I hate that question. What people are usually asking is, what do you want to do for make money? It actually has nothing to do with being. Um, It would have been great if someone had asked me as a young person and talked to me about being, but they didn't. But when I was conceptualizing what I wanted to do to make money, I literally said, I really wish there was a job where like I could just go and watch people and get paid for it. And like to an extent, I'm an observer of people, but people still have to come to me. I literally was over here like, hot damn, what I wanted as an adolescent actually exists and AJ gets to do it. Like, it felt like a fantasy when I said it. Like, you know, I, I just want to watch people. And I didn't mean that to make judgments about it. I just want to watch people and get paid for it. I also want to be a talk show host. I'm doing that right now. And I want to be an artist. And I do that. Like, all the things I want to do, I'm doing. But that just sounds amazing. How are you received when you move into these communities in this particular way? I do a lot of groundwork. I, you know, I don't think they would have asked to work with me had I not had the background that I had. I've been working with Asians and Pacific Islanders for many years. I've had, I've developed relationships. Um, I've been immersed in communities. Um, And before I went on these trips, I did a lot of research. I even talked to people from these communities and like, I want to be respectful. I want to know what the cultural nuances are. I want to make sure that people feel comfortable with me. I'm not here to like, like you said, like tell their stories for them. I'm not here to like take over. Um, I'm just here as a person who's trying to learn too. And I'm just trying to be human. And I, I just put me in any situation and I, I will like be a chameleon chameleon in some sense and you know immerse myself in it um when i went to palau this year one of the first things my host took me to a firstborn ritual and and i don't know i don't want to butcher like the tradition of it but basically after a woman gives birth to a child she is separated from her partner like for months and her family literally takes care of her like that's that's her job just get better, heal, mm-hmm. take care of your kid, make sure that you're both alive. And then the husband or the partner, whoever it is, stays away. They can visit, but like the idea is like once you're like back in with your partner, like you're taking care of the whole household and you can't take care of yourself and heal from like labor and giving birth. That was the first experience. And it was a whole community event. There's like 400, 500 people at this event hosted by the woman's side of the family, lots of food, lots of singing and dancing. The, the the partner's family had to bring the money. It was basically like, you bring the money, you're gonna be taking care of our daughter and this child, you better bring it. And so it was like this beautiful thing, there's a lot of singing and the woman gets presented back into the community. She's in her traditional wear and she's lathered in like 
turmeric and and coconut oil and medicinal plants of like ordained with flower of like plants and she is like chanted back into the community and presented back and it's just to show like she's been healed she's she's able to come back to the community but i was like wow that's so beautiful and like i was like i just got to experience that and they just welcomed me in there they're like oh yeah come here come eat with us oh say hi to the woman or to the mother and like give blessings and whatnot. And I was just like totally immersed in it, but I had to mentally prepare myself. and like, it's not about me. I'm not traveling to these places because I'm getting a paycheck. I'm traveling to these places because this is, it's a blessing to learn it and to be able to share the stories like this. I don't know if I like culturally did it justice. Right. But it's just to be like, these people love their people. And how do we show that and show them that this is like, it's a community thing. It's not just an individual thing mm. that they're experiencing in health. It's like a community health thing. That is so beautiful on so many levels. Like talk about community care. And this yeah. is especially like, um, I had a word and then I lost it, but like fresh on my mind, like I feel my body has this warm tingle because once a month I do groups for an organization and everyone who comes to the groups is a parent. Um, it can, you know, mom or dad. Um, and we talk about a lot of things. And one of the things that came up was between two months ago and now one of the moms had birthed. And I tried to joke is when I saw her in person, we had a, a group in person my perception of her level of pregnancy wasn't that she was going to be having this baby as soon as she did. So she comes on the call and she had given birth to her baby a couple of weeks ago and we are congratulating her and loving on her. And part of the conversation was around like how so many of us struggle. So many of us parents struggle because within this context and culture that we're in, we're expected to do what an entire village and community did. When it was, you know, people will say sleep when the baby sleeps and the number of times I myself have said and other people said, I know people say that, but it's so hard to do that. It's not hard to do that when a community of people are washing the dishes that you think you need to be doing or folding the clothes you think you need to be doing or taking care of the other children and siblings. No, because an entire community rallies itself around that mom, that baby, that family. Then, Because I'm like, yo, your body just went through a huge 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 trauma two weeks ago and had you been shot in the head or had you had a been impaled through your heart people would be like oh my god don't even think about doing the things you're thinking about doing your body has to heal they said our body heals when we rest and so much of our culture is set up that new parents newly birthed moms new dad like are back to work in six weeks and people think they're benevolent for giving them six weeks. Six weeks is nothing. So to no. hear this story and envisioning how much love and support was wrapped around this family and then to have a whole community of people, hundreds of people bless you back into yeah. your everyday life. Like I know that that was a way of my ancestors. And I can't even exactly tell you who my ancestors are yet. 
But I know this is how they functioned because we come from tribal people, communal people, people who didn't talk a whole bunch about self-care because self was part of the community. Oh my gosh. I was, I was so dumbfounded. I was like, oh my gosh, this is how they've been staying healthy. It makes sense. Like it makes sense that a woman gets 10 months to heal. Come on. We're not in America anymore. We're not in America anymore. So many things would be different. Like just thinking about what 10 months after birthing my children and being nurtured and cared for, not just off work. That's the thing. Like your job is saying you ain't got to come here and do this work, but our culture is still saying you got to do a whole bunch of other work. But to be cared for in that way, that, thank you for sharing that. That is so beautiful. What I also heard you saying is you recognize the importance of coming into these cultures humble. I don't know what I don't know, but I will try to know as much as I can know so that when I come, I'm not a burden on the community. It is just so interesting to me how many people from a colonized perspective, move into places and put the burden of their learning what to do on the community itself. Teach me this, teach me this, teach me this, teach me this. And we're being offensive and all the stuff in the meanwhile, putting the burden on the community. And I I love that that is not how you're entering these communities. But another thing that you said is so valuable. You go into these places to be recipients of their stories so that you can tell their stories that they gave you and even your humility in saying I probably am not culturally like getting this all right but here are these things and I think about how contrary that is again to colonization and the way so many things are done is that people go and observe culture and then they still tell the story based on their own lens they look at it and go, and this is what they were doing and put their own narrative instead of immersing in the culture to say, this is why they are doing it. How do I know? Because not only did they tell me about it, they allowed me to come and participate. That yeah. we're not voyeurs in someone's culture, just looking around and taking notes in a notebook. And if I got any therapists listening, don't be a voyeur in the therapy room. If I got any culture uh, coaches listening, don't be a voyeur with your coach partner because you can do the same thing. When we sit with our little notebooks and we're going to just tell me your story and we make all these judgments, how do you immerse yourself into someone else's story? Asking the questions of what, what do I need to be an active How do I contribute to this instead of extracting from your story and making my own conclusions? Don't be a voyeur as a friend. Don't be a voyeur as a parent, right? We can do these things by simply observing someone else and making our own judgments instead of immersing ourselves to tell me, tell me your story behind that decision. Would you mind sharing what was happening in your body when that thing happened? That's how we can become part of someone's the understanding of someone's story instead of just making all of these assumptions based on experiences we've never had that feels very important and I think when we can get to a level of story receiving where we're not just observing and making judgment based on our own stuff there's healing there's medicine in that 
truly there is medicine in that. And it makes me think back at like the last storytelling training that I was at a lot of, and, and I go back to colonization because colonization has basically shut us up. It has shut us up in the sense where we can't tell our true selves or like we were taught not to, to, to talk about our problems because it would add more problems. So working with like these, these Asian Americans or folks who just newly immigrated to the country. And they're like, well, we don't talk about our problems, but at these storytelling trainings, they're talking about their stories for the very first time. They're crying. I'm crying. Everybody in the room is crying. And then after they tell their stories, it's like this collective breath of like, whoa. And, and then I ask the storyteller, like, how do you feel? And they're like, I feel so relieved. Mm-hmm. That I was able to share that. It feels very similar to if you have gas, but we've been culturally like you don't pass your gas in public. And that's a burp, that's a fart, whatever it is. If you're going to at least make it a burp, definitely don't, right? You don't pass your gas around other people. So we found ways to hold it in. And then if we can get to a semi-private or we're walking like some way that we can just slowly release this gas, one of the first things we're going to feel is relief because that air bubble was not designed to live inside of your body. That's why it is seeking to be passed. Our stories are a lot like that, Mm -hmm. right? Our stories were designed to tell. They were designed to share. They were designed to be heard so that there can be resonance and there can be um, reflecting and there can be belonging. And a lot of that comes through our stories. So likewise, when I am with some people who are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and they say things to me like, I've never told this story before. I'm thinking like you've been walking around for five or six decades with gas up in you that you can't pass. And as a person who ain't trying to feel that, I love all expelling of waste. I enjoy it except vomiting. But if I got to get to a point where I'm vomiting, I'm grateful to my body for getting it out quickly. So I, I often feel a little bit of heartbreak for people who've had to wait so long to to share of themselves and this doesn't mean that people aren't talking the people talk all the time maybe they learn to just omit the parts or maybe they they have a highlight reel and they just talk about that but I think the gift again of being with people and being a safe place because part of it is we have to do work AJ to create Uh an environment to create a space where people feel safe and comfortable enough to release their story, to share their story. And you don't just stumble upon that. Like that is dedicated, intentional work that we do in order to create the the atmosphere for a person to feel like they're able to do that. And the tears and the, and I, I work with a lot of people who stop the tears at the eye. And I, and I always just say, you don't have to, but I'm curious. Your tears have stories too. What if you allowed them to flow while you told their story? If you're letting the story out, can we let all the things that are associated with it have some release too? And there are people who will allow the tears to fall down their face and will say, I've never felt this. 
right? Because there's also medicine in our tears. And when we block the tears from falling, we literally block the medicine that it's giving us as they flow. So I'm constantly encouraging people, let the medicine flow. There's no shame here. There are no expectations here. And I love that you're able to do that with folks who will then go from that space out into the community and do their work, that the healing is not just for them, it benefits them, but it is something that they are then going to take out into the community. And someone who receives it in the community can maybe do that for someone in their home. It's so, so beautiful. It, and it's, you know, I, I keep talking about health and I have like my own health journey that I'm still like living through. I think about, if you think about people in movement work specifically and the whole theory of like, you know, you didn't just get into this, you're doing this because you're healing yourself. And the people who haven't told their stories yet, can you imagine why so many movement people get sick? Why so many people of color get sick because they haven't been able to tell their stories. And it manifests, that gas manifests in your body into cancer. It manifests into like chronic diseases or ailments, pain, mental health, you know, like it's all connected. It is all connected. Um, I have a friend that I'm eager who will be on the podcast. He did tell me that he's ready now and I can't wait for him to share his story. I have a friend younger than me when it's a heart failure. And I knew this intellectually, but when that happened is when I began to remind people that this work will kill you. Yeah. Relent, like without mercy, like. Not sustainable. It's it's not. And our bodies, you are so right. In this, These illnesses present in so many ways. Now, the key is it's not one day I'm fine. The next day I have this chronic illness. It's how the work itself almost requires a dissociation and a detachment from our bodies to continue to go. And yeah, then we're getting maybe some of the results we want. We're, we're doing the numbers. We're reaching the people. We're doing all the things. So the benefit of the detachment from our bodies is evident. And so we stay detached. But when that chronic illness was a whisper of a pain, you didn't hear it. You didn't feel it. You ignored it. It slowed you down. It made you less productive. And so you silence it until finally it gets to a point where it says, you cannot deny me. Now we can't work. Now we are forced to allow the body to heal or die. And like, it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. And like you said, part of it is let's get some of this stuff out. Can we tell our stories? And in safe place, I don't just necessarily mean for everyone. Like our, our stories are sacred. They are gifts. They they should not be trampled upon. They don't have to be given uh, when we don't want to give them. But can we prioritize finding the places where we can? And we choose who we want to listen to our stories. I think that's like one of the important things about it. And it's just, it. There's such a relief to being able to share a part of you that's been inside of you for so long 
that's like itching to get out, like that's been trapped in there. Um, and to be able to release that makes you feel like a completely different person. And I do understand the challenge in choosing someone to hear your story because many of us didn't get to choose who used our bodies. Mm. Many of us didn't get to choose who used our labor. Many mm. of us didn't get to choose so many things. And I, I've encountered so many people that holding on to their story, it's almost like a righteous act of rebellion. Like you, you won't take this from me. You took my body, you took my innocence, you took my labor, you took all these things, you won't take that. And so I want to honor that and say, it's like when one of my daughters, she's so funny, like she'll make these threats that are not harmful to us. Right. So I don't know. It, it like one example might be fine. Then I'm not going to eat dinner. Right. And it's just kind of like, hey, sis, I don't think that's having an impact you think it's going to have. Like you eating is not attached to me. Like, I think you're trying to like be a, you know, you're trying to demand something, but I'm like, you're choosing things that are hurting you. So like, I'm not even like, yeah, okay, look, I'm not even, I ain't even stressing over the fact you're over here trying to thread me. Let's come back and get this right. Like, is there like, that doesn't impact mommy and daddy, like to get your way or, you know, this is hurting you. Think about how that would impact you. And that's what I say to those who are holding on to their stories. I honor the resilience that and the autonomy that you have to say, I won't just give my story away, but know that in some ways is hurting you. So can you be curious? Can, can we start the process of even being curious to go, is there someone that I will share my story with? Sometimes I, I hold circles just so people can share their stories. That's essentially what a soul hug is. And so it takes its forms, but that's essentially what my soul hugs are. Come release and be hugged and loved. And when we do it in community, yet there's their fe that fear initially, but then you're like, just like that woman who was blessed back into her community, you recognize that there are these people surrounding you, loving you and blessing you as you've released this thing. So that that it's almost a pleading I have for those who know they're holding on to story. I've done some um, end of life story capturing for Ooh. some folks who uh, actually, they all have been cancer diagnosis. So like uh, um, knowing they're going to die, I've, I've had the honor of collecting their story so that it does not go to the grave with them, so that their descendants so far down the line, not only will have their story, but will have it in their words and in their voice. That is some of the most honorable work I feel I've ever done. And I think all of my work is honorable. So again, if you're hearing this and it's not on my website, I keep going back. Like, I know I'm not done doing it. I haven't marketing, marketed it, but like, that is such an honor to sit with people and collect their oral history so that it may be preserved, right? So if you're hearing it and you need to tell your story, like hit me up for real. Um, because sometimes we just, we got to get that out. Yeah, I, I love that. Um, we should definitely connect after this, but uh, I remember in CHJL at, towards the end of our program, they were saying like, who is your ideal coach partner? 
And I was like, oh my gosh, what is my ideal coach partner? It could be anyone. It could be, but like, because I was going through my own cancer journey, I was like, there's so many things that I needed during that journey. Um, and some of that I did get towards the end of our coaching program because part of our program was you needed to get coached a lot mm-hmm. <laughs> by each other. And I, I was tell I tell people this, like I was literally coached by two people every week for nine months. And I went through a horrible like health journey last year alone, but I don't remember it like that. Like, I don't remember having, I had like four surgeries. I don't remember the surgeries. I just remember like, okay, AJ, you just had surgery. How are you doing? Like what happened? Yeah. And so when they, when um, our facilitators were like, well, they start thinking about who your ideal coach partner is. I was like, I really want to work with people who have gone through traumatic health journeys to help to hear their story because especially people of color, there's a stigma behind being sick. Yes. There's a stigma of how you tell people you're sick. I remember when I was first diagnosed, I would hear my elders say, like, don't tell them, don't don't post this on social media. I felt so ashamed. I was so ashamed that I had cancer. Mm. And all I really wanted was, like, for people to hear me. Mm. Can we just pause there for a second? Just let that settle in. Like, my body felt it. It felt it for you, but it felt it felt a familiar like that's in my that's in my blood that exists in my people. Um, the secrecy and the shame around not being well, whether that's physical illness, mental illness, relational illness, like, and then the burden of keeping the secret falls to the person who's already yes. sick. Yeah. Mm. I thank you for sharing that. Go ahead and continue. I'm sorry. No, thank you for that pause. I was getting very like emotional about it. But um and and I was like, I don't know how I'm gonna find a coach partner with that. And just so happened like people just started coming to me for it. And It was the first time, you know, like when you talk about soul hug, like, like doing, having that space for that. I was like soul hugging these people who are trying to survive. Mm-hmm. And all they needed was someone to listen to them or create that container for them. Because they couldn't get it in their own community, in their own family, in their own hospitals. You know, um, I was like, I, w- I was assigned a therapist when I was first diagnosed. And I remember it was like this white woman and she's like, so like, what are you experiencing? And I couldn't open up because I'm like, you're not Asian. You're like, you didn't get it. Like, this is how we talk about being sick. Like no one would get that. But to have to like be put myself in a place where um, I have that shared experience with some of these people um, and just being like, it's okay. You can talk about it here. It's safe to talk about it here. That was really important to me. And that, that like creating that, that space for that coach partner was like really important. And, you know, as I, we, I don't want to stop. This is so good. But as we start wrapping up, (laughs) I, I, one of the things you just said that I want to highlight is, you know, through our program, we were, 
tasked and encouraged to consider who is our ideal coach partner? Coach partner is the term we use that might be interchangeable for client or patient, our coach partner, because we recognize we're partnering. Now I have therapy partners, I have coach partners. And sometimes, you know, we've sucked up this culture. We There are all these kind of things that we start thinking about, or, you know, maybe, well, who would want to come to me? Or da, da, da. But so many of us have shared the experience of we realize that we went through what we went through and now we have a good understanding of what we needed during that time and being uniquely positioned to then offer safe haven and space for others who might not even know they need it at the time, who know they need it and can't find it, who who don't even think this kind of holding space is possible, right? I appreciate that your travels across the world have shown you what possibility looks like in so many different ways. There is a newly birthing person um, or a recently birthing person who will hear this and go, what the what? In my wildest imagination, I couldn't imagine 10 months of being cared for to heal and then being blessed back into, into my everyday life. They wouldn't probably have even imagined that as a possibility, like, can I just get 12 weeks paid? (laughs) Like, that's it. Can I get somebody to come clean my house? But when we travel, when we seek genuine diversity in our own lives, when we listen to people's stories, we start to realize what is our greatest imagination exists somewhere. The services I provide, AJ, the services you provide are somewhere in someone's imagination that they don't think is possible. If only I had someone who would hold me tenderly and listen to my story. That is that is a wildest dream for somebody. And part of why I do the Labors of Love podcast is so that people can recognize here that there are these dope people for real in real life and that your wildest dream and imagination for yourself exists in a person that already is here, already doing the work. Just reach out just send an email, just go to their website, right? That is one of my community services to the world, this podcast. And I am just hoping that if you have a wild dream, let me know. I'm gonna try to find the realization of your dream and I wanna talk to them so you can hear that these things do exist. I I mean that passionately. So AJ, this, this has been so amazing. I, I like, don't get me wrong. I love all my guests. My podcasts are dope, but there is just, my body has responded so lovingly and so warmly to this podcast, just being in connection and connected to you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for accepting um, the invitation Is there anything that you want to leave with the listeners as we begin to close? Yeah. I, um, so the, where I work reimagine collective is it was born out of the pandemic. It was, it came, it was a gift from the pandemic and the backdrop of George Floyd murder. And when the founders were thinking about a name, we're like, when you were just talking about like, there is a way, there's a different way. We're like, 
can we reimagine something different? Can we reimagine organizing differently? Can we reimagine us being leaders differently? Can we reimagine what true community care is? And that's like the essence of like where I work and how I work with people in community. It's just reimagining a different way. Mm, I know when I said it, reimagine collective, I'm like, that's dope. Like an, an, an entire collective of folks who are willing to reimagine. Mm. AJ, I love you. You too. Thank you for this experience. Oh, I'm so, so grateful for your yes. Um, I want to just thank my producer, Jay Sugg from Instant Classic Media. Trey Angel is my nephew who provides my music. Um, I want to thank you, my listeners. Um, every time you tune in, I'm just so grateful. Um, so, so grateful that my labor of love can be helpful um, and influential to those who want it. So thank you for tuning in. Don't forget, I'm on all the major social media outlets. Also, don't forget, I don't do that myself. So I want to shout out Steph, <laughs> who is my social media person who makes sure, you know what, she's, I haven't created, to be fair, outside of my podcast, I have not created new content in quite a while. I think I'm going to do a solo cast soon to just catch people up at where I am. But I'm, I'm not, I'm not creating right now. And that feels really good. But I have so much content that she is pulling stuff out the archives and it is hitting. Things I said two years ago, three years ago, last year, she's reposting and I am benefiting from the things that came out of my mouth back then. So shout out, Steph. Thank you for all the work that you do on behalf of Labors of Love and for the people. Um, so yeah, catch us on the social media. If you want to get in correct, direct contact with me, hit up my website, www.thelaborsoflove.com. Suggestions for content or guests for the podcast, just scroll down on the welcome page and there is a form you can fill out. Let me know who y'all want to hear from. But until we connect again, you all be well. <laughs>